someone had requested that I uh, lead the meditation on the six disadvantages of samsara and show how to incorporate bodhicitta and also emptiness into that. So last week I did it with bodhicitta and this week we'll do the meditation and then at the end incorporate emptiness. So when we think of the six disadvantages of samsara, it's important to realize that they are describing our life and our experience. So first, there's no certainty. We make a lot of plans. We get insurance policies. We sign contracts. We uh, publish things with future, you know, the future schedule, assuming that all of this is going to be certain. And yet, uh, nothing in our life, a certain thing, is certain. And things can change very quick, quickly, with it seemingly without warning, but that's just because we don't see all the causes and conditions. So an example is how people are being affected by the coronavirus. Whereas a few months ago, nobody even thought about this. And it just kind of popped up. So no certainty in samsara. And then second is there's no satisfaction. So there's lots of things that we want. Is there physical objects that we want? Or a certain kind of relationships we want? Or certain kinds of jobs? Or a certain status? Or certain qualities? Certain opportunities? So we want lots of things. We may or may not get them. But even when we do, they don't bring lasting peace and happiness. They either bring more problems or we're totally uh, dissatisfied, wanting more and better, more and better. So think about that in terms of your life, the constant dissatisfaction, constant craving and longing for something. And then third or fourth are having to die repeatedly and be reborn repeatedly. So death is not something that we look forward to. It's not something pleasant. It's confusing as 
is the intermediate state. And then repeatedly taking rebirth in a new body, not understanding where we are, what's going on around us, how we can stay alive. So think about that. And if it's something you want to keep doing, dying and getting reborn, The fifth is constantly changing the status. So this can be in one life, going from being poor to rich, rich to poor, or important to humiliated, or famous to disgraced secure to insecure, insecure to secure. So our status is always changing. And again, it can happen quite quickly. And then also between rebirths. Yeah, we can go from a lower realm to a higher realm, higher realm to a lower realm. We don't know what our next rebirth will be that's going to be in a pleasant situation or an unpleasant one. Always going up and down, gaining things in each life, relinquishing them at the time we die. And then the last one is that we have no reliable friends who can uh, protect us from suffering, who can take on our suffering. When we are born, we are born alone. When we have discomfort or pain, we experience that alone. When we die, we die alone. So all these are experiences that we go through repeatedly in samsara, these six disadvantages. And when we contemplate them, then there may come a very strong feeling of, I want to get out of samsara, or I need to get out, or I don't want these things to continue happening. So then stop and ask, who is it that wants to get out of samsara? And we say, I want to get out. Who is that person? It feels like there's somebody definitely there who's suffering wants freedom. But see if you can identify exactly who that person is, that strong feeling of I. 
Who is it that revolves in samsara? And who is it that will, that wants freedom? And who will eventually one day be free? Check each of the aggregates, the body, feelings, discriminations, miscellaneous factors, consciousness. See if any of them are that person who revolves in samsara, who practices the path, who one day will be free. So that's an example of how you can take a Lamri meditation and then apply emptiness. Last week, applying bodhicitta. You can apply bodhicitta and emptiness in in the same meditation session. Okay, I just did it in two different sessions. You can, you know, see more the impact of each one. So we say the word I a lot, but who are we talking about? Okay. So we're starting a new chapter on mind, body, and rebirth. So we went into this topic a little bit in volume one, in approaching the Buddhist path, Uh, but we're cycling around through it again because it's a very important topic and uh, there's lots to it and so we keep kind of you know, looking deeper each time, exploring deeper each time. And when we're looking at mind, body, and rebirth, the whole question of who is the person comes up very strongly, you know, and what is the mind, what is the body, and what makes something alive. So, uh, yeah, important questions. Okay. So because our mind is the ultimate source of our happiness and suffering, and by transforming the mind we attain awakening, understanding the mind is essential. The topic of the mind and its potential was introduced in Approaching the Buddhist Path, the first volume of the Library of Wisdom and Compassion. And in this chapter we will explore the nature of the mind, its relationship with the brain, and rebirth more deeply. Okay? So how how many of you think about rebirth every day in one way or another, thinking about other realms of existence or thinking about your own rebirth or is it something that, you know, in one way or another comes into your mind every day? Yeah. Yeah. Try and, and make it something that that does, yeah? Because uh, it really changes how we feel about the self, 
because if we're thinking about the future life, there's going to be a continuation of this person then, but also a very different person. Okay, so sentience, mind, and brain. The mind's nature is clarity and cognizance. So clarity refers to the immaterial, immateriality of the mind, the fact that it cannot be apprehended by our physical senses and is not made of atoms. Okay, so this is an important important point that there's a lot of discussion about nowadays. Yeah, because people say, you know, my mind, meaning, you know, the brain. And I've even watched people, even Buddhists, you know, people say, oh, my my brain just doesn't want to accept that. Yeah, you know, somebody died, oh, my brain doesn't want to accept that. Or my brain's having a hard time adjusting to, you know, the new job. Yeah? I mean, so often people talk like that, like the mind is the brain, the person is the brain. It's quite interesting. And yet, if you put a brain out there, yeah, you put a brain there on the table, is that a mind? Is is it something that's cognizant, that can apprehend objects? Yeah, I mean, if you look at a brain out there, does it look much different than, than this? In terms of, you know, do you look do you think the brain feels happy and sad? Hmm? Brains in a good mood or a bad mood? <laughs> well, it's, it's just atoms and molecules, that's all. Okay, so clarity uh, on one hand means the immateriality of the mind. And it also uh, indicates the mirror-like quality of the mind, the fact that the mind can reflect objects. So when the object, the sense consciousness, or the sense faculty, and a preceding moment of consciousness come together, then the mind reflects that object. And then the second quality of the mind is that the the mind uh, is aware so it can know the object. Okay, but Dharmakirti says, therefore my own mind is clear by virtue of its own nature of clarity. So nothing else, no other factor makes the mind clear and able to reflect. This is its very nature. By virtue of other objects being transferred and illuminated in it, this makes it clear too. So when it says other objects being transferred, it isn't that, you know, I look at the the cup and the cup goes into my mind. What it means is that when we apprehend uh, an external object, an aspect of it appears to the mind. Yeah, it isn't that the object goes into the mind or that the mind goes out to the object. 
sometimes they they use that terminology like the you know the eye consciousness goes to the object but it doesn't mean that it leaves the body and goes out there and then comes back yeah it just means yeah that it's being activated by uh you know the the contact yeah in addition clarity means the fundamental nature of the mind is not affected by defilement Okay, so look at the word clarity, how many meanings it has here. Okay, it's, it's immateriality, it can reflect, and it means it's not inherently affected by defilements. Okay, now you're going to say, but the mind that has defilement is clear and, and aware you know, there's an angry mind. It's in the nature of clarity and awareness. So isn't that mind defiled? Yeah. So then the question comes, can that mind go on to, to Buddhahood? The mind of anger, does it go on to Buddhahood? I hope not. <laughs> yeah, don't want to be an angry Buddha. No, the angry mind doesn't go on to Buddha. But the clear and aware nature of the mind goes to Buddhahood. Okay? So that clear and aware nature, yeah, it can be covered by the defilements, but it's not uh, in the, the defilements are not the nature of the mind. Mm-hmm. Even though they say in Lorig, when we study Lorig, and they say that uh, every mind, uh, every of the primary minds, is one nature with all the uh, mental factors that occur simultaneous with it. Yeah. Then, well, well, anchors one nature with that with that mind. Yeah. Well, that's why that particular mind can't go on to Buddhahood, but just the clarity and awareness in the next moment that can be there once the anger is eliminated. That can go on. There's another quote from from Navartika. The nature of the mind is clear light. The defilements are adventitious. Okay. That's quite a, it's a very famous quote. Okay. So their clear light means that the uh, the afflictions are not in the nature of the mind. They're, in other words, they aren't. Uh, uh, the mind is not inherently defiled. The clear the clear light nature of the mind, meaning the clarity and awareness, is not inherently defiled. Uh, so you see, we talked the other day about many meanings for the word for the term clear light. Cognizance, which is the second quality of the mind. Sometimes we say clarity and awareness, clarity and knowing, clarity and cognizance. Yeah. So cognizance refers to the mind's ability to engage with its object. 
Together, clarity and cognizance allow for the appearance of objects to arise and for objects to be known and experienced. The presence of a mind is the difference between a living being and a corpse. So just think about it, you know, clarity and cognizance allow for the appearance of objects to arise and for objects to be known and experienced. This happens, this is going on all day with us. Do we ever like stop and go, what does it mean for the appearance of objects to arise in the mind? What does that mean? What is actually happening? Yeah. Where is this appearance? Yeah. What is causing it? Does the are you sure? Maybe the object does go in the mind somehow. When you say, "I can't stop thinking about that," oh, the object crept in your mind. It's there. Okay. So it's interesting because this is our our daily experience. But how often do we actually stop and say? What actually is going on when I see something? What is that process? You know, and what is it that is, you know, the clarity and awareness that is cognizing this? Yeah, it's easy to say, oh, the mind is, you know, the mind is the difference between a living being and a corpse. And then we imagine some kind of amorphous cloud-like thing, you know, that's inside the skull at one point, and then when they die, it floats up. Yeah, like in the movies, you know. So that's how we, how we think about it. Huh? We say the, the mind leaves the body. Well, yeah, it's this amorphous thing just kind of, yeah. But we think of it as it's somehow it has form. Somehow has color and shape. Yeah, it's kind of like a cloud, you know? I mean, there's an edge around it, isn't there? Yeah, maybe this kind of hazy appearance. Huh? Misty. Misty, yeah. Yeah, and that somehow a cat appears in my mind, that means... That's the thing that's caused cognizing a lamp or a cat. You know, how can that thing cognize anything? It's just kind of a, a cloud. Yeah. So what is it that's doing all this cognizing? Yeah. And, you know, really sit and think about what's the difference between this, you know, and the mind? You know, between this kind of thing, which, you know, it doesn't care. It doesn't go, ouch, when I hit it. And if I say you're ugly, it isn't offended. <laughs> and if I say you're, you're beautiful, it doesn't get arrogant. Yeah? So what is this thing that's the mind that does all these different things? quite interesting to ask. 
okay, in a struggle to clarify how we know anything exists, Descartes said, I can doubt the existence of the body, but I know I exist because I am conscious. Yeah? So what I said, I think, therefore I am? Yeah? So consciousness is what makes me know I exist. But what is that consciousness? And is it the person? Is it the person or is it the property of the person? Or does it go back and forth from being the person to being something that the person owns? And who in the world is that person anyway? In short, the nature of consciousness is to be aware and to know objects. So again, from Pramnavartaka, consciousness apprehends objects, apprehending them as they exist. It arises in the nature of the objects. It is generated by them as well. Okay, so apprehending them as they exist. Okay, you can see grasping at true existence. Okay. But, the you know, the consciousness arises in the nature of the object, meaning that there's, there's this aspect that, that appears to the consciousness. And I know in conferences with uh, the scientists, uh, His Holiness says, oh, well, the science, you know, when he heard about the scientists saying that there's an aspect that appears in the brain, yeah, that when you see something and it goes in, the, you know, the rods and cones do their job and it goes into the uh, optic nerve and it goes into the brain and it's cast upside down, the the aspect is cast upside down, but somehow you know it right side up. But I want to know, where is that aspect? Is it in a brain cell? Yeah, they say, yeah, do you know anything about it? And they say that there's an, it casts an aspect in the brain. Where is that? And how do they know that it's something that appears upside down and then gets, yeah. Okay. Anyway, so it arises in the nature of the objects and it is generated by them as well. So in order to have a consciousness, there has to be an object and a sense faculty and an immediately perceiving moment of consciousness. Okay. So a sentient being, or sattva, although vajrasattva, I don't think we would call a sentient being. Okay, anyway. Uh, a sentient being is any being with a mind who is not a Buddha. Okay, so this is important to understand because yeah, things come up all the time. Well, you know, an Arya Bodhisattva is a sentient being. Yeah. But a Buddha is not a sentient being. So it, you know, it's just anybody who's uh, who's not a Buddha 
is a sentient being, any being with consciousness, any being with hiccups. <laughs> but everything that is biologically alive is not necessarily sentient. Okay? So being biologically alive and being a living being are not synonymous. Okay? Bacteria and viruses are biologically alive, but we do not know whether they have mind, the presence of which is indicated by the ability to experience pain and pleasure. Okay? So, about, you know, these are pretty tiny things. Yeah? But is there consciousness in there? No. A bacteria seems a little bit more likely to me than a virus because a virus doesn't have a, I think it doesn't have a complete set of DNA or something about the DNA in the virus. But, you know, when you take an antibiotic, are we killing living beings? When you, when you, viruses, there's no real thing that kills viruses, is there? Is there any medicine that kills a virus? Or with viruses, you just have to... I don't think directly, but um, there are some medicines that seem to decrease how much they uh, uh, multiply. multiply and um, like that. But yeah. it's mostly the immune system. That's why they're so hard to... To get rid Deal of, because yeah. it, it's a thing of strengthening the immune system. So when you have a virus, you don't take antibiotics. They don't work. Yeah? Antibiotics are for bacteria. Um, so most Buddhist thinkers believe that bacteria and viruses uh, do not experience pain and pleasure. Okay? Animals and insects, however, do. The, the Tibetans, they, you know, bacteria, viruses, they don't have anything in their language for that. You know, Geshe Dadul is in the process of developing terms for, for these things. So they go, all go under the, the term, I think, which is boo, which means like worm. Yeah. So, I mean, what, what kind of living beings in your are there in your body in ancient society? Worms. Yeah, that's what comes out. So, you know, bacteria and, and viruses join the, the you know, the, <laughs> the category of worms. Worms, I think, have consciousness. Yeah, you can see they don't. The, you know, they experience pain, they experience fear, and so on. Okay. Animals and insects, however, do. Computers may have artificial intelligence that enables them to respond like a human being, but they do not experience pain and pleasure and are not sentient beings. So being able to respond according to societal conventions, doesn't indicate that you have consciousness. Although, didn't somebody make some kind of movie about, you know, a man who fell in love with, 
you know, Siri or, you know, one of these online, you know, yeah, because they're so nice. They're very polite. You know, when you make a wrong turn on the highway, your, your app doesn't go, you idiot. You know, your husband or your wife might say that. Yeah. But the app is so polite. Go up another block, turn left. Yeah. Doesn't say, I told you to turn left at the last intersection. Why didn't you listen to me? (laughs) Yeah, she can see people fall in love with somebody who's very polite, very kind. Yeah, says all the right things. You say, I'm sad, and they say, oh, that's really too bad. What can I do to help you? It turns out that app was cheating on him with its other clients. Oh, was that it? The app had another lover. (laughs) So there were two people in love with with Siri? Was that it? She ended up cheating on the person with another computer. Oh, with another computer. Yeah. I see. <laughs> Why? <laughs> okay, well, so much for I said them, them being really nice, you know. <laughs> Sorry, buddy, I'm off with another computer tonight. <laughs> Okay, but His Holiness says, however, if one day computers become capable of being a physical support for consciousness and a sentient being creates the karma to be born in one, a computer could become a sentient being. Okay, so two things here. The physical thing has to have be have a physical va- base that can support consciousness, you know, whether usually we think of some kind of nervous system. Yeah. But maybe there's other ways, you know, that something can support uh, consciousness. So that has to happen. And a sentient being has to create the karma to be born in that, you know, as a computer. So it makes me wonder when I hear about all these people doing AI and being so interested in it and wanting to create uh, a human being, I wonder if in doing that they are creating the karma to themselves be one day if a robot or, you know, a computer is able to be the physical support for consciousness. If they're creating the karma to take that rebirth. Yeah. Then what happens if, yeah, is that why my computer (laughs) got stuck today? (laughs) You know, the the person inside it had a headache. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, my new computer, you know, didn't do something right today. So... So some material substances, such as plants, may appear to have consciousness, 
although they do not. A Venus flytrap, a flower that catches and ingests, ingests insects, is able to detect the presence of flies and moves to trap them. Have you ever seen a video of Venus flytraps? It's quite interesting. You can look it up on the computer, I'm sure. You know, but it's a flower that's kind of open, and when an insect flies around it, it, yeah, and then it eats the insect. That's how it's nourished, okay? However, movement is not a sufficient indicator for the presence of mind. Although for, you know, when scientists try and uh, discriminate between the animal realm and the plant realm, at least when I was in fourth grade, one of the, <laughs> you know, I haven't studied science in a long time. One of the things that, that was the difference was whether it could move. Yeah, move to look for food. So in that way, oh, you know, is the, does that make the Venus flytrap an animal? I think they decided no, but I can't remember why. Okay. But from, from Buddhism, just being able to move isn't a sufficient indicator for the presence of mind. Some plants may grow better when people talk to them, <laughs> but that too isn't proof that they cognize phenomena and experience pain and pleasure as sentient beings do. Their growth could be due simply to biological functions, such as a sunflower turning toward the sun, is it, uh, just as a sunflower turning towards the sun is explained through biological functions. Okay, so the sunflower doesn't go, oh, hey, the sun's out, woo. You know, <laughs> yeah, but there's some biological thing that happens that it turns. Some sutras mention that in a few cases, spirits are born in trees, rocks, or wood. These are the spirits' homes, not their bodies. Still, those sentient beings may be disturbed if their home is damaged. Okay, so when Lama Zopa was here, uh, back in oh four, very beginning of oh five, January of oh five, our apple tree out there. We were walking by it, and he said, "I don't know, but there might be a spirit living in this tree." Yeah, and so yeah, so spirits can live in trees, but again, those are their bodies. But if you damage the tree, it you know, it's like ejecting the spirit out of their house. So that's why we do uh, blessings of the land before we, uh, you know, build on something and we kind of make prayers before we cut down trees and and so on. <clears throat> and why we we ask people don't pee and poo in the in the woods because that could disturb any kind of spirits that are living in trees or living in ponds and streams. <clears throat> okay, while the brain is material in nature, the mind is not. The mind lacks shape and color and cannot be perceived by scientific instruments. So throw away that misty blob, <laughs> you know. 
mind doesn't have shape or color, and we can't measure it by scientific instruments. Like other produced phenomena, the mind is impermanent in that it changes moment by moment, although it is eternal in that it has no end. Why is there no end to the mind? Because one moment of clarity and awareness becomes the cause for the next moment of clarity and awareness, becomes the cause for the next, and there is no force that can stop one moment of clarity and cognizance from giving rise to another moment of clarity and cognizance. Okay, so the mind is eternal. Then you say, well, how come we can end ignorance? Isn't it the same thing? One moment of ignorance gives rise to the next moment, gives rise to the next moment. Well, yes, that's what's been happening since beginningless time for us and why the ignorance is still in our mind. But we can put an end to ignorance. We can't put an end to clarity and awareness because there's nothing that can stop that. But there is something that can stop one moment of ignorance giving rise to the next moment of ignorance, and that is wisdom. So why can wisdom do that? Yeah, It's because what ignorance perceives, yeah, or is the opposite of what wisdom perceives. Okay, so wisdom is perceiving things as in the way that they exist. Ignorance is misperceiving things. So it's a, it's an erroneous consciousness. So when you have a correct consciousness, like the wisdom realizing emptiness. Yeah, nothing can uh, debunk that wisdom because it's seeing things as they actually are, whereas ignorance is not. And so when you see things as they are, the ignorance, you know, doesn't have any feet to stand on anymore. Yeah, and that's how it can be discontinued. Yeah. So it basically boils down to, because things lack inherent existence, therefore awakening is possible. Hmm? Because if things did exist inherently, then ignorance would be a correct consciousness, in which case there would be no antidote to it. In which case, samsara would, could never end. Yeah, because ignorance is the, the first link in the development of samsara. Okay. So like other produced phenomena, the mind is impermanent in that it changes moment by moment, although it is eternal in that it has no end. When it is obscured by afflictions and other defilements, it is said to be the mind of a sentient being. When all obscurations have been removed, it becomes the mind of a Buddha. Okay, so the clarity and cognizance is always there, but when it's clouded, it's the mind of a sentient being. When the clouds are taken away, it becomes the mind of a Buddha. Just as our body has many parts, arms, legs, internal organs, 
and diverse characteristics, hardness, fluidity, mobility, heat, and space, so too there are many types of minds, gross and subtle levels of mind, primary consciousnesses and the mental factors that accompany them, sense consciousnesses and the mental consciousness, and so forth. So when we say consciousness or mind, it isn't just one thing. There's many, many different types of minds there. Okay. So it doesn't mean that all the different kinds of minds, that they're all kind of sitting in different places. And when we have a cognition, it's like, okay, visual consciousness, you're on, and visual consciousness runs to the center. And then the five, uh, con you know, mental factors, <laughs> omnipresent mental factors. So they wake up, okay, we got to get there quick too. And then... <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so they all rush and then okay, we perceive the cup. Yeah. But then the mental consciousness, that you know, okay, we're thinking about something. Mental consciousness, you know, you thought you were gonna take a break and get some sleep, get back here. You know, and then the five on the present mind, whoosh, they come from their corner. And then you get attachment and then a minute later you get anger and then a minute later you get jealousy and those other mental factors are coming and going and coming and going very quickly. Yeah. So it's not like that. <laughs> yeah. When we say that there's different kinds of minds or there's different parts to the mind, don't think in physical terms, okay? <laughs> Okay, there's attention, there's attention, <laughs> you know, feeling you're late. <laughs> Discrimination's always there, you know. Okay. Um, in the case of human beings, many of these types of mind depend on the body and brain, but some do not seem to. Our sense consciousnesses depend on the sense faculties. Yeah, by sense faculty, we're meaning the very subtle um, material inside the gross sense organ. That is the thing that, that actually connects the object to the consciousness. Okay, so our sense consciousnesses depend on the sense faculties, the nervous system, and the brain, as well as an external object. Due to the contact of a flower with a healthy eye faculty, a visual consciousness that sees its color and shape arises. If the eye faculty malfunctions or is absent, the visual consciousness cannot arise. Likewise, if the area of the brain that is related to visual consciousness is damaged, we cannot see. Yeah. I wonder in cases of blindness, yeah, if it's all the same. I mean, some are, are the faculty, there's damage to the, the eye, but in some it must be damage to the brain. Yeah, I would think. Here I speak generally, for as far as I know, scientists have not determined whether just one part of the brain facilitates sight, or if other parts of the brain can assume that function if the first part is damaged. 
Hmm. Yeah. So when I used to work with people that had strokes and the visual, uh, the optic uh, part of the brain was damaged, mm-hmm. um, and it was it was never totally damaged. Usually, it was partially. So you'd I would go and take a tray of food into the person's room, and they would eat lunch, and I would come back, and they would eat half of what was on the plate, uh-huh. and then I would turn the plate and then oh and then they would see the rest of the food and they would eat that yeah but over time you can train them Uh so that they start doing that and after some time with some of them they then start seeing the full picture oh so when they start seeing the full picture has the change been in the brain i think so that's, huh. that's my guess. Yeah. Huh. I don't know how you'd ever measure that, but you know. Yeah. Hmm. Buddhist science adds that the arising of visual consciousness also depends on a preceding moment of mind. Physical elements alone cannot cause or constitute cognition. Okay. So there has to be a previous moment of mind. Otherwise, you could have the brain, you could have the sense faculty, you could have the object, but there's no perception. Now you could say, well, that's because the person's brain dead. But what about, you know, if you could keep those neurons firing, but the consciousness has left? Do firing neurons themselves constitute perception. Yeah. Interesting question. Hmm. Other mental states seem to arise through a different process. Memories of the past or imagination of the future often seems to pop into our mind without an external object stimulating them. Sometimes there is an external object, but sometimes it's like all of a sudden you start thinking of, you know, your third grade teacher, and there was nothing around you to make you think of your third grade teacher. Okay, it just, you know, there was some cause. We don't know what it was, but... Yeah. Once we remember or imagine something, the brain responds. So His Holiness is saying, first comes the mental activity, then comes the brain activity, at least in these mental kind of functions. Here the mental function appears to come first, and the effects on the brain and the body follow. The scientists I have spoken with affirm this sequence, but according to current scientific belief that the mind is an emergent property of the brain, it should not occur. Okay? So if the mind were an emergent property of the brain, then first the brain should do something, and then the mind would happen, would, you know, do something. Scientists are also baffled by the case of a 44-year-old French civil service servant who is missing 90% of his brain, but functions normally. 
That's interesting, isn't it? Yeah. This does not accord with their theory that consciousness is an emergent property of the brain. There are probably other similar stories like this. I don't know them. Have you heard of some? In a somewhat similar respect is the, the nun study, which they did mm -hmm. many years ago on some of the Catholic sisters, that their brains were totally, had all the characteristics of dementia, but yet they oh. were cognizing lucidly to the day of their death. Right. Yeah. There's many um, examples of people that had uh, traumatic brain injury for different reasons, and mm -hmm they shouldn't be functioning and cognizing properly, but they do. Mm. That, that happens yeah. all the time. Yeah. Yeah. In one study, neuroscientists observed people's brains before and after they were taught a certain meditation practice. They detected noticeable changes in their brains after doing the meditation practice for some time. Scientific studies has, have also shown that some aspects of the brains of experienced meditators differ from those of ordinary people. These findings demonstrate that just as changes in the brain may affect the mind, training the mind can affect changes in the brain. Causation can go both ways. Mm. Yeah, as always, His Holiness also talks about, I can't remember what it is exactly. I don't know if it's written in here, but maybe if I say something, somebody will know. Well, he was talking about, yeah, the difference between experiencing something and remembering it and imagining somebody else experiencing it. It still impacts the same part of the brain. So, yeah, so there, those are three different experiences. One self-experiencing it, and one remembering it where it's not happening now, and the other one somebody else is having the experience. But still, the same part of the brain is going. And His Holiness is saying, sounds like the brain's not very smart. You know, because it the brain alone can't tell the difference between these three different things. You know, if you just look at what's going on in the brain, you can't tell the difference. Distinctions between mental states cannot be made at the level of brain functions only. Experiments have demonstrated that the same area of the brain is activated when a person sees an object and when he mentally thinks about that object. Now, why did I think about this paragraph when I had not read it in advance and I had not read it, I had stopped in the, at the end of the preceding paragraph? Yeah. Memory. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, you can't, if you asked me to write this chapter again, I would not write exactly the same chapter. It would come out very differently. Similarly, the pain centers in the brain are activated both when we actually experience pain and when we see someone else in pain. Yeah. 
clearly there is a real experiential difference between seeing something with our eyes and thinking about it, although the brain does not seem to distinguish the two. This indicates that brain functions alone are not responsible for everything about human experience and perception. You know, and so interesting that, you know, the same area of the brain, you know, if I experience pain and if I see somebody else experiencing pain. Yeah. What do they call that? Mirror, mirror nuance. Yeah. When a meditator practices one-pointed concentration and attains serenity or shamatha, she develops physical and mental pliancy and experiences a particular type of physical and mental bliss. Through this, she attains deep levels of meditative absorption, such that she does not hear a loud sound nearby. Although she did not make a special effort to change her brain, because her brain plays a role in the development of serenity, some changes may have taken place in its function and structure owing to the development of physical and mental pliancy and bliss. Using scientific instruments to investigate this would be intriguing. So is that her not hearing the sound due to a change in the brain? Or is it due to a change in the mind? Or is it, you know, does the mind change and affect the sense faculty so that the, the neurons in that area of the brain aren't even firing to start with? Or is it that they're firing, but there's no conscious apprehension of the sound? Yeah, very interesting. Like, what's going on here? Along this line, genes received from our parents may have some influence on our mental disposition. However, I do not believe that the diversity of human dispositions, interests, and attitudes is due principally to our genetic composition. The habitual thoughts, emotions, and actions of a person's mind earlier in this life and in previous lives as well as the imprints left on his mind stream, play a role. The vast majority of parents tell me that each of their children has a different personality and habits, starting right at birth. I've, I ask this every time I talk at rebirth, you know, and I put the question, and parents always say, yeah, my kids came out very, very different, you know. They say that babies are not blank slates conditioned only by their genes and the events of this lifetime. Okay. But then they say, oh, but, you know, twins, sometimes if they're separated at birth, they can have certain qualities or they think of certain things at the same time. So that may occur. But I wonder if the majority of time it occurs like, like, how often does that occur with twins? Yeah. Or is it just something like from time to time that occurs? And what about with other sentient beings? And I, I personally think it's quite dangerous um, 
and very counterproductive to uh, talk about certain uh, psychological things as due to genes. Yeah, There may be a genetic influence, we don't know, but a genetic influence and the genes being the principal cause are two very different situations. And I think the danger is that then, let's say somebody is an alcoholic, they say, well, alcoholism runs in my family. That's why I became an alcoholic, because of my genes. As if growing up in a household where alcohol was always present had nothing to do with it. As if their own uh, way of thinking has nothing to do with it and their own experiences in life have nothing to do with it, as if the advertising industry and the culture around that says you have to drink at parties uh, have n has nothing to do with it. You know, I think it's too easy for somebody then to say it's due to one cause, and since I can't control my genes, then I am not responsible for being an alcoholic. And that is really harmful to people if they think like that, yeah. Or if a child thinks, you know, everybody in my family is an alcoholic, I'm going to become one too, yeah. Just having that thought sets you up. Mm -hmm. So I think in, in something like that, there's so many different causes and conditions. Yeah, we can't just say that there's one principal thing and then abdicate our responsibility. Also, you know, this idea that maybe there's genes that make people do criminal activities. Ooh, is that dangerous? You know, then we start testing people's genes and, you know, euthanizing the people who have certain genes <clears throat> in case they may become criminals later. Now, that would, that's not right. Okay. Events at the time of death also make us question if the mind always depends on the brain. Within a few minutes of the breath stopping, brain functions also cease, and the person is pronounced clinically dead. However, I know of many cases in which consciousness is still present. In 2001, someone who appeared to be an ordinary monk died at Delic Hospital, just down the road from where I live in Dharamsala. After his breath stopped, there was no rigor mortis, and seven days passed before his body began to decay. Only then did they realize that he was meditating during that time. Yeah. Tibetans have observed that experienced meditators may remain in meditation for several days without their body decaying. My senior tutor, Kyabje Ling Rinpoche, remained sitting upright in meditation for 13 days after his breath, heart, and brain function stopped. Once he had completed his meditation, his body slumped over and death occurred. 
I also saw a picture of an elderly Mongol Mongolian monk who stayed in meditation for 25 days after his breath ceased. And I have a video, which I can show people, a small clip, of uh, Dursang Rinpoche, who was one Kargyu Lama. I met him uh, when we had life as a Western Buddhist nun in, in, uh, in Bogaya. Very, very nice Lama. I really liked him. And he died a few years ago. And um, the video clip, when the, when the Lamas die, you know, they sit them upright and they put the crown of the five Dhyani Buddhas on them and, you know, all this tantric garb and they're wearing their robes and 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 all. But usually, you know, by that time, rigor mortis has set in. So I don't remember how long after the, uh, uh, you know, the, the clinical death. But in this video, his attendant reaches under the robes and takes Rinpoche's hand and just moves it like this. There's absolutely no rigor mortis. Yeah. And you re might remember when Achi and Manji died. Yeah. They, they, there was no rigor mortis for days, and there was no smell to their bodies at all. Made us really wonder who those cats were. Yeah, totally unusual. That that isn't, yeah, what happens. So it's called tukdam, yeah, the the thing of meditating in the body after. Uh, breath has ceased. And, you know, they sit the Lama up and there's a little bit of warmth at the heart. And that indicates that the consciousness is still there. At that point, it's the extremely subtle mind. So this person is usually a tantric practitioner and realized. And then when they slump, if they touch the heart again, it's cool, which means consciousness is left. And then at that time, they take it out and, you know, do all the ceremony, the cremation ceremonies. So they usually leave people's, uh, the Lama's bodies for some time. Although Geshe Sonam mentioned when he, before he died, he said, you know, burn the body quickly. You know, I'm not going to hang around. <laughs> so I think they waited a few, you know, maybe two or three days and then did it. Okay, so Buddhists attribute this to the existence of the subtlest mind, the mind of clear light. So here's another meaning of the word clear light. So the mind of clear light, which can function separate from the brain and may remain in the body for some time after physical death. If the subtlest mind did not exist, it would be difficult to account for the fact that when one person's vital signs cease, the body decays immediately, and when another's cease, it does not. It would be good for scientists to investigate this. So whenever this comes up at Mind and Life Consciousness uh, conferences, he always encourages the science. Uh, to, and then I'm going to tell something, and I just looked, and it's in the next paragraph. Okay, so some years ago, some scientists brought an instrument to Delic Hospital. That's in, in uh, low, below McLeod Ganj. To observe the brain functions of proficient meditators while they were dying and after their vital signs ceased. 
But as often happens, things do not turn out as planned, and no meditators die during the time the scientists were there. Yeah. Actually, there was a lot of resistance from the meditators to be involved in the scientific experiments. They didn't want the electrodes placed on their brain when they were meditating and uh, and especially during the death process, they didn't want any of that because they said, you know, we don't know what kind of subtle energy these machines emit and how it could affect the mind when it's in a very delicate state like at this. So they had a hard time finding uh, meditators who would volunteer. <laughs> Okay. Um, however, one time they were successful. After some scientists set up equipment in a Tibetan hospital in India, a previous Gandantripa uh, died. So Gandantripa is the head of the Galu tradition. The Dalai Lama is not the head of the Galu tradition. This is a very common misunderstanding. Yeah, he is not the head of the Galu tradition. He's the spiritual leader of all of the Tibetans together. But the head of the, uh, the Galu tradition is the Gandantripa, which is a position that uh, rotates. Yeah, somebody, I think they serve for six years, and uh, then they leave and another, another one comes. Okay, so a previous Gandantripa died. His body remained fresh without decaying for three weeks. Can you imagine that in the Indian heat? During this time, scientists put electrodes on his head and recorded data about his brain functions. This made them think that a subtle energy that does not depend on the body might exist, like the mind. <laughs> A few people have clear memories of previous lives, and on occasion, some have prescience of future events. These extraordinary events are beyond current scientific theories, but they support the Buddhist explanation that different types and levels of mind exist. Some are related to and dependent on the body, while some can function independently of the body and physical sense organs. This is because the mind and the body have different continua. The, mind, the body is material, whereas the mind is not. Okay, shall we go on? Although science and Buddhism share many similarities, such as the investiga investigative process approach, some of their underlying premises differ. First, the source or foundation of cognitive processes is seen differently. Science believes that all mental processes derive from the physical organs of the brain, whereas a highest yoga tantra asserts that all mental processes, sense perceptions, emotions, intellect, coarse, uh, as well as subtle mental functions, these all derive from the primordial mind of clear light the subtlest mind that is independent of the brain. 
So that's the one that was meditating, like when the Rinpoche uh, sat in Tukdam for 13 days. This leads to a second difference. Buddhism doesn't see the mind as limited to the body and accepts past and future lives. It believes that our actions, our karma, in one life can affect our future circumstances, perceptions, and emotions, and can influence which body with its, its unique genetic makeup we take in future lives. Science currently states that either the mind is the brain or that it is an emergent property of the brain. Since the brain exists only in this life, most scientists have not considered investigating the possibility of the influence of past and future lives and focus only on what is notable, noticeable in this life. So that's a big difference in what they investigate. Yeah, science is really limited to this life and to things that can be measured uh, uh, by scientific instruments and that things that have something to do with matter. And Buddhist investigation is not limited in that way because we accept the existence of mind. If their basic assumptions were different, scientists might make unexpected discoveries. Yeah. So it would be interesting, you know, they have these, uh, mind and life now has the, have these uh, science kind of uh, contemplative um, consciousness seminars and, and retreats and such in the summer. And it would be very interesting. I, I don't know if they do this, but, you know, to have some of the scientists when they sit there and, and uh, you know, like I was saying, look at the cup and just ask, well, what is really going on? when I'm perceiving the cup. And where is that happening? And what is happening? And what is it that makes me able to perceive a cup? Yeah, it might be good to really do a retreat with them and emphasize this and see if they come to see that it can't just be, you know, chemical and electrical activity in the brain. The differences between Buddhism and science should not be points of contention, but rather areas in which we come together to do further research and investigation. And that's a beautiful statement and a beautiful point. So Buddhism doesn't set itself up against science. You know, we know in Western civilization, religion and science, boy, they were really at each other. And they still are. They still are. But with Buddhism, you know, we're quite willing to accept things that scientists can prove. Yeah, it's fine. And we have, you know, uh, then we ask scientists, you know, if, if we have uh, tenets that you don't have, we believe things that you don't, can you disprove what we're saying? Like, can you disprove rebirth? Can you disprove the presence of of mind. Yeah. So you can't disprove something by saying, I don't see it. Yeah, you can't find your car keys. It doesn't mean your car keys don't exist. Okay. 
So you can't disprove something by saying, I can't see it. Yeah, you have to actually be able to show why it's impossible for that thing to exist or produce another uh, cogent argument that would explain the phenomena. Okay, so differences between Buddhism and science should not be points of contention, but rather areas in which we come together to do further research and investigation. Both Buddhism and science have the, co the common aim to know the truth about how things exist and to conduct research that can be verified by experience. Both seek to benefit people and neither follows blind belief. Due to recent scientific discoveries of correlations between the body, especially our genes and brain, and the mind, there is a trend in society to think of mental and emotional difficulties as caused by these physical components. Although alcoholism and certain mental illnesses may correlate with particular genes or certain neurological functions, I, meaning me, believe that it could be damaging to assume that these are causal factors and minimize the social, mental, and emotional factors involved. An alcoholic could easily, easily come to think it is hopeless to try and quit drinking because my alcoholism is due to my genetic make makeup, which cannot be changed. Someone who loses his temper and behaves violently could believe my brain is wired this way. There's not much uh, I can do to change until medical scientists make a pill that will allow, that will alter my brain chemistry. So this argument, actually, if, if scientists use it, it means that we can't become awakened. Yeah, that awakening is impossible. Because especially when they talk about, um, what is it, your hippocampus and your amygdala, a lot of the stuff that causes, uh, um, yeah, it's like, maybe I'm talking about the reptilian brain, okay? So the thing that makes us... Uh, uh, you know, tense up when we sense danger and run away or attack. So anyway, yeah, it's, you know, that that uh, fighting back when we're threatened or fleeing or, you know, that these are instinctual, um, although who knows what instinctual means, but, um, you know, and that these are good and they are what kept us alive and, and so if you say these are hardwired into us as human beings, then the idea of awakening becomes impossible. Because as long as you have a human body, uh, you cannot overcome self-centeredness, you cannot uh, overcome anger, you cannot overcome fear, you know, because these things are hardwired. So that is very much... Uh, contradicts a you know, basic Buddhist belief. Mm -hmm. Physical and mental disorders and their causes are multifaceted. The more we remain open to this, the more we will be successful in treating them. Genetic factors, biochemical processes, brain structure and functioning, as well as social, economic, dietary, mental, and emotional factors must all be factored in. 
Remedies, too, can be multifaceted. Such an approach, I believe, leads to more social and personal reflection and responsibility. Questions? Yeah. I was just going to make a comment about the... Um, uh, that if we think that the brain, you know, the lower functionings are hardwired and so then we can't. I think anybody that understands anything about the brain, we have lower function and higher functions. And so it's the higher functions that can override uh, many of these lower functions that we call hardwired. Mm. So, you know, like the simple thing of um, learning how to abdominal breathe when you're anxious overrides the fight and flight response. Mm. So, um, so if you take the whole system and think about the whole system, you see how there's so much uh, ability for change mm. uh, in it. So uh, I thought, um, I'm still trying to get clear about this whole idea of cognizance and, and clarity is let's say you wake up in the morning and before your mind gets going on the day, due to familiarity, your first thought when you open your eyes is, may all living beings, may I not, may I refrain from harming any living being with my body, speech, and mind. The previous moment of mind doesn't have to be concomitant to that thought. It can be just, how does, because I'm still trying to figure out how would that thought arise coming out of uh, a state of sleep out, where out there's- of habit. So that would be a, a disposition that's just familiarity. Yeah, yeah, that would be a latency on the mind that you've enforced over time. That, you know, when you wake up, you want to have that thought. Yeah. Okay. So I'm still trying to, you know, the big question is where do these, where do these thoughts come from? Where do yeah. they abide and where do they go? Yeah. It's, it's real interesting, interesting when you start watching. And here's where... You know, study of yoga, yogacharya, you know, or Tita Madra makes up sense because, you know, they talk so much about latencies on the mind causing things. Yeah. And, and you can see how that really happens. Mm. 